Good morning, Lighthouse Baptist Church. Good morning. Good to see you all today. Let's open with a word of prayer. God, we want to start off by saying thank you, God. I pray that we would have a heart of gratitude for all that you've done for us. Even right now, you're doing stuff. You're working on our behalf. You're acting in ways that we do not see. And yet Jesus said, my father and I are at work every day. And we know that's because you love us. So God, thank you for all that you've done for us. We can't even begin to comprehend how much you've done for us. But we know that you laid your life down for us. And God, we thank you most of all for that. God, I pray that we would have a better understanding of you from our scripture passage today. I pray, God, that we would be pointed to Jesus, we would come to know him better and love him more. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us in understanding, guide us into action, lead us deeper into love of the Father, and help us to love others as God loves others. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So today is an exciting day because we are starting a new series. We're starting a series on the book of Jeremiah. So there's a lot to unpack from the book of Jeremiah. This is probably the longest book that we've gone through together in a series in a year. There's 52 chapters in Jeremiah. So there's a lot to go through. And Jeremiah is not exactly the easiest book to read, not because it's super complicated, but just because of the way that it was written. Jeremiah is a collection of Jeremiah's writings and writings about Jeremiah. So we have stories about Jeremiah in here. We have writings and sermons and texts from Jeremiah scattered throughout the book of Jeremiah, but ultimately all of Jeremiah has the same theme, that God's people have wandered far away. And Jeremiah, being called by God, is pointing the way back to God. But we know that Jeremiah, by our standards, is considered unsuccessful. There may have been a one or two people that actually listen to him that we know of. So a lot of people would look at that and say, oh, well, Jeremiah was an unsuccessful prophet. But we know that Jeremiah was a very successful prophet. Why? Because he did what God called him to do. He said what God told him to say. How people responded was outside of his control. But he responded by saying yes to God's call of speaking on God's behalf, of pointing the way to God. Now, I love the way that Eugene Peterson, who I've talked to y'all a lot about before, I love how he describes Jeremiah. He says, imagine that there was one guy on the Titanic with sonar equipment trying to get the captain and crew to believe that there was an iceberg ahead. They'd never heard of sonar and thought he was nuts. 
that guy was Jeremiah, and the Titanic was his country. So Jeremiah is warning the people. He is telling them, you need to turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. You're headed towards an iceberg because of what you're doing. It's bad for you. And because it's bad for others, God himself is going to act against you. So in the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, God brings specific charges against his people. And we may say, what is God upset about? What is Jeremiah talking about? Why are they going in the wrong direction? Well, God tells them specifically what they are doing. The first thing that God says is that they have abandoned him. And the second thing that God says is that they have hewed out broken cisterns for themselves. So look out for those two. We're going to read them in our passage for today. It's in chapter 2 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and the land not sown. Israel was holy, was set apart to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man even dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not prophet. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out 
cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the first charge that God brings against them out of their two evils that they've committed is he says, they have forsaken me. In other words, they have abandoned me. So we might ask, how did they abandon him? What is God talking about? Well, look at verse 5. What does he say? What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Now, what is God talking about in that passage? What is he saying? They went after worthless things. When you look at the Hebrew, it could be saying they went after vain things, like we talked about through Ecclesiastes, vanity, meaningless things. They went after empty things, and by doing so became empty What things did they go after? Well, they went after idols. Now, we hear about idols a lot in the Bible, and we don't really hear about them a lot today. I haven't really heard anything about idols lately on the news. But that doesn't mean idolatry is gone. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with idolatry. And I've talked about this to our Bible study group, but idolatry is not just a practice of finding a carved out image of a God and worshiping it, we might think that's idolatry, and it is, but at the heart of worshiping an idol is the belief that I can take things, even good things, and make them into ultimate things. And this is at the very heart of sin. All sin flows out of our idolatry. It all comes out of our belief that I can take things and make them into ultimate things. Now, God alone can take the weight of being the ultimate thing. God alone should be the ultimate thing in life because we were made by God for God. And yet many times we say, I'm not committing idolatry like the Israelites were, and yet we're taking good things and making them ultimate things, making them first, prioritizing them first. And they can't handle the weight of our expectations that we put on them. A good example of it, you may say, well, that's not idolatry. Idolatry is just worshiping a false image. Well, okay, let's look at that. Do you remember when Moses was leading the people by God's power, out of slavery in Egypt. Now he went up to the mountain and the people got frustrated and they said, Aaron, make for us a God, a God that we can control, a God that we can have a say in rather than waiting here for who knows how long for Moses to come back. So what did Moses do? He said, okay, take off your earrings. Give me your jewelry. And he fashioned that into a golden calf. He melted it and shaped it into a golden calf. So is there anything wrong with jewelry? No. Is there anything wrong with earrings? No. But they were taking good things and making them the ultimate thing. And this is what God's talking about. He says, you've forsaken me. How? You've gone after 
worthless things and in doing so become worthless. You've gone after empty things and by doing so you've become empty. So that's one way that they've abandoned God. They've forgotten about him. They've abandoned him. And how they've forgotten him. In verse 6, what does he say? God says, They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. So he says, You've abandoned me by forgetting me. You forgot what I've done for you. You were happy to receive all of my help when you were in a dark, blistering desert with no water, where nobody lives, where hardly anybody crosses through and nobody can cross through by themselves, I helped you. I carried you. I brought you to there. And as soon as I brought you into where I was bringing you, you forgot me. You forgot all that I did for you. So they may not think that's a big deal, but God says this was an act of abandoning me, of leaving me after all that I've done for you, after all the care that I've given to you, you left me, you forgot about me. Another way of saying it is they forgot about the God who never forgot about them. God always cared for them, always loved them, always protected them, but they did not care. Now, they worshiped God with their mouth. They still had the temple. They still had religious practices. But in their hearts, they had forgotten what God had done in the past. And that forgetting of God was dictating their actions in the present and in the future. And in verses 7 through 8, we see that they have abandoned God by acting against God. What does verses 7 through 8 say? It says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So these prophets of God are actually speaking on behalf of a new God now. They're speaking on behalf of for all. Now, they are not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, just like Jesus said is the most important commandment. But also, we may not really realize it here, but they're also disobeying the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. What do you need to do in order to worship the God for all? Well, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 19. Verse 3 through 5. Jeremiah 19, verse 3 through 5. What does it look like to worship Baal? God says, You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. 
and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it even come into my mind. So do you see what's happening here? Do you see the injustice that's that's happening where innocent children are being offered up as burnt offerings? Do you see that God cannot stand for this? And we read Jeremiah and we see God judging and condemning. And it's hard to see that. God is a God of love and peace. Why is he condemning? Why is he judging? But then we also see the people that he's judging sacrificing their children, killing them. There is injustice. People are not treating each other as they should. So we can't say God help people and also say God don't judge the people that are hurting them or oppressing them. That doesn't make sense. He has to do one to do the other. In other words, if people are being oppressed and hurt and we ask God to help, then God can't just say, oh no, I'm not judging. I'm not making any condemnations. No, God has to speak out against what is wrong. And we see him doing that all throughout Jeremiah. And the problem we have when we read Jeremiah is we underestimate the gravity of sin. We underestimate how devastating it is on us and those around us. But God takes it more seriously than we ever have or we ever seem to do. God says that you have acted against him. Why? Because you've abandoned him, but you've also hurt the innocent. You've also hurt the helpless. And I'm not just going to sit back and watch. Jeremiah, tell them I'm going to act. And they're going to be on the receiving end of judgment if they keep this up. In verses 11 through 12, they show us how shocking and appalling this is. Verses 11 through 12 says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? In other words, these other nations, they have their gods, but they're at least faithful to those gods, and they aren't even real gods in the first place. But my people have changed their glory. Glory basically can mean importance, the weight of God. They have changed their weight. They have changed their importance for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. This is a total and absolute scandal. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. And that is what we are talking about. But it is shocking that we would leave God, that we would find all that we need in him and leave him for something else. And what are we leaving him for? Well, that's the second charge that God brings against the people. He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, 
What is a cistern? We read that word, but we typically aren't very familiar with what a cistern is. So let's go over that real quick. A cistern was a huge reservoir that they would dig out. And so when rain would fall on roofs, it would fall into the cistern. So during the rainy months, they could have all of their supply of water that they need. So when the months that come where there's no rain at all, it's okay because we've hewed out cisterns. We have a water supply. But what would happen sometimes to those cisterns? Well, in order to make the cistern, they had to plaster, waterproof, waterproof plaster, in order for all the water to stay in. Otherwise, it's just going to seep through the mud, right? So you have to put this waterproof plaster down. But sometimes there would become a crack in the plaster. So what does that mean? That means that it's a broken cistern. It means that, yeah, there's water in it, but what does God say? Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Basically, they have water, but it's draining as we speak. It's leaking out, and pretty soon, if your cistern is broken, you do not have a fresh source of water. No, you just have a deep pile of hollowed out mud. A broken cistern is not where you want to go for for water. And yet God says, that's what my people have done. They left me the fountain of living water. Does a fountain have the same problem? Do you have to worry about it running out? No, it goes on and on and on. And God's saying, all you need, you have in me, and yet you are going out and hewing for yourself broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is he saying? He's saying all of our cisterns that we make for ourselves become broken cisterns. They empty and they leave us empty. This is something that militaries would do if they attacked a city. They would surround their city wait for their cistern to run out and then they would have no water. And if you have a broken cistern, now you definitely don't have any water. But God's people have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns. Basically, these cisterns can't hold the weight, the glory that God can. God can handle being the ultimate thing in our life. But our broken cisterns cannot. They crack under the pressure. Whether your idol is a person, a place, a thing, whatever you're making into the ultimate thing, it cannot handle that pressure. Timothy Keller wrote a book about idolatry called Counterfeit Gods. Really, really good book about idolatry. He says, if we look to some created thing to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. And how many times have our hearts been broken by our cisterns that we hewed out for ourselves that seemed full of water at first, but eventually we found out life cannot be found here. It can satisfy us for a little bit, 
but not for all time. And that is ultimately what sin is. Our sins are broken cisterns. They look appetizing. They look like they can fulfill us. They look like life can be found in them. But you know what? They just turned, they turn into muddy pits. They become prisons. And literally, people would use cisterns, broken cisterns, as prisons because, well, we can't use this for water anymore. So not only do broken cisterns leave us empty, they become prisons for us. We even see this with Jeremiah himself in chapter 38, verses 7 through 13. So Jeremiah 38, verses 7 through 13. Now, in verses 1 through 6, we see that people who don't like what Jeremiah is saying, they say, Jeremiah is speaking against our people, uh, our military, our troops. They're becoming unmotivated after hearing what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah is saying that God is going to send Babylon in, and Babylon is going to win, and they're going to continue taking out exiles. Get Jeremiah out of here. We don't need to listen to anything else he has to say. Throw him in a broken cistern. So they use ropes to put him down into a cistern. That's his prison. But in verses 7 through 13, it says, When Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Abed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil and all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern and he will die there of hunger for there was no bread left in the city then the king commanded Abed-Melech the Ethiopian take 30 men with you from there and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies so Abed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to our wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So you may say, Cody, couldn't you have just said that Jeremiah was rescued by Abed-Melech? Couldn't you have just said he got out of the grave? I could have, but the reason I showed you those verses was to show you how impossible it was for Jeremiah to get out of there on his own. Did you hear what his predicament was? He's sinking into the mud. He's starving. They need 30 men They need a wardrobe full of clothes to tie into a rope and lay it down for Jeremiah to even have a chance of getting out of that muddy pit. And like I said, sin is a broken cistern. We go down into it thinking this is a source of life, this is a source of water, this is a source of refreshment. But what happens? It becomes a prison for us, becomes a muddy pit that we cannot get out of on our own. We are stuck. We have no Ebed Melech. We have no 30 men. We have nobody to save us. We have no water. We have no food. We have no bread. We have no hope of help 
from our broken cistern once we become trapped in it. We must see our sins for what they are. And we must see what they do to us. And we must see the predicament that they put us in. They put us in broken cisterns. But is Jeremiah only a book about the bad things are going, that are going to happen? Or is it a book about hope? Is it a book about how God, despite what we have done, is fixing the world? We see even in Jeremiah that God is making a new covenant. He says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. My work is going to be imprinted on their hearts. Do we see somebody else in the Bible talking like this? Well, yes. What did Jesus say? In John chapter 7, he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Didn't we just hear God identify himself as the fountain of living water? And now we're hearing Jesus say, I am the source of living water. If anybody believes in me and trusts in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, when you see me, you see the Father. You see the same God that spoke to Jeremiah, the same God that rescued his people out of slavery, the same God that rescued Jeremiah out of his broken cistern. I am the one who delivers. I am the one who rescues. What does Psalm 40, verse 1 through 3 say? It points to Jesus, but what does it say? King David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So it says, God pulls me out of the muddy pit that I can't get out of myself. And many will see someday and trust in the Lord. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, as the scripture has been pointing to all along, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, all you need is found in me. All you crave is found in me. I'm the one you were made for. I'm the one you were created for. You are not born for broken cisterns. You were born for rivers of living water. Why would you leave? All you need to hew out for yourselves dirty, disgusting, muddy, empty cisterns. But Jesus says, There's hope. I know you can't lift yourself out of there on your own, but I can lift you out of that pit. I can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Jesus drew us out of the pit of destruction 
by going into the pit of destruction. Jesus rescued us from the broken cistern by going in to the broken cistern. He thirsted on the cross so that we would not have to thirst again. What did he say on the cross? He literally said, I thirst. But he was speaking of something more than physical thirst. He was speaking of thirsting for the Father, but he missed out on what he had had forever so that we could have it, so that we could experience it. He sunk into the grave. Just as Jeremiah was sinking into the mud of the cistern, Jesus sunk into the grave. Why? So that we could leave the grave behind. And he was emptied so that we could be filled up. Our broken cisterns empty and they empty us. But Jesus took that on himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a man and emptying himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. Jesus says, or God says, they went after worthless things and became worthless. But Jesus became that on the cross. Jesus is not worthless, but he became sin. Do you see why it's so important that God had to be the one that died on the cross? Do you see why? Because nobody else could take the weight of that. Nobody can take the weight. It would just crack them. It would become a broken cistern. Only God could handle becoming all of our sin. And that was necessary to kill sin because when we see Jesus on the cross, what we're also seeing, what we're actually seeing is our sin dying on the cross. That is why Jesus had to go to the cross. And he said, I will do that for you. I would go that far for you. Will any of your idols go that far for you? No, they will not. They cannot. It's not possible. But God is saying, I'll go further for you than any of your idols will. Nothing in all of creation will ever lay down what I've laid down for you so that you could be raised up. When we know that Jesus died for us, then we know how far God would go for us. Others may say, oh, well, I'm sorry you're in that slippery, muddy, broken cistern. But God said, at my own expense, I'm coming in to bring you out. When we know that God raised Jesus from the dead, we know that the cross is not the end of the story. Yes, Jesus sunk into the mud, was emptied, but he also rose from the dead. What does that show us? Well, it shows us that Jesus is a better savior than we are a sinner. The fountain of living waters is greater, bigger, and stronger than any of our broken cisterns. We should never doubt for one second that God is able to completely save because God says, I am able, I am a fountain of living water and I will go into the broken cistern, but I will over power it. I will destroy it. The Bible says the last enemy to be defeated is death, and that enemy 
was defeated on the cross because why? It could not hold him. Death could not hold our God. It could not hold a fountain of living waters. And that is so important because we know that our fountain of living waters did not run dry in a grave, but he rose from the dead, an unbreakable fountain of living water. And what does he say? He says, follow me out of this broken cistern. Follow me out of your hewed out broken cisterns. Come into the life that I've prepared for you before you're even born. Come to me, the fountain of living waters. Life can only be found in me. Joy and peace. Everything you need can be found in me. Everything else is just a pretender. Yes, maybe you can find joy and peace and gladness for a short, short, short time in those broken cisterns, but it's running out fast. But in me, you have all that you need and you have it for all time and it never runs out. It never runs dry. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will even go to the cross for you. And he has done that for you. You will never find what you need in your broken systems. You will find and you have found all that you need in Jesus who says that I am the source of living waters. Let's pray. God, we grieve over our broken cisterns. We grieve God, that we go to them, we hew them out so often, expecting to find what we need in there, God. But I pray that when we are tempted to go in the wrong direction, when we are tempted to go away from the Jesus way, I pray, God, that you would help us to remember that that is a broken sister. I hope, God, that we will see sin for what it is, a broken, disgusting, empty, muddy deep, dark cistern. And God, I pray that we would see you for who you are, the one who loves us, the one who made us, the one who laid down his life for us. We are so astounded and amazed and in awe that you care for us that much. As, as David said, what is man that you are even mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. But in Jesus, we see the Son of Man and the Son of God laying down his life for us, making a way where there was no way so that we can have rivers of living water to the point that it overflows out of our hearts. God, I pray that you would remind us of that this week, that that would be burned into our hearts. that no matter what our outside circumstances are, the fountain of living water goes with us through all of them. We love you, God, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.